Well, good morning and welcome to Gateway. We're glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if it is your first time here. And uh, my name is Brian Dillon. I am the campus minister at Ortiz Valley Campus. As you heard in the video, Dave is in Mississippi this week with the Army, and uh, he should be back next week. But I, I'm glad that I can be here uh, with you in his uh, absence. You know, I, I hope your summer is starting off well. I know it's not officially summer yet, but vacations have started, camping trips have started, and the kids are out of school, so it, it feels like it is summer. And this week it's going to feel like it's summer because it's going to be in the high 90s, uh, and I, I hope you're ready. So, hey, uh, last week we started a, a new series for the summer called Themes of Genesis. And the goal of this series is to teach us or remind us of the basic truths we discover in the opening pages of the Bible. Now, our first message was on this major theme of life. If we were to pull one word from the first cap couple chapters of the Bible, it would be life. And we said that God, the creator, appeared on the scene, no explanation or backstory, he just was. And he spoke the world, the, the universe, into, his, into existence. He used only his words, and it all came. All things came to life. And we said that all life has intrinsic value because God has created it. All life has value, even if we don't understand it, because all things have value and purpose because God has a purpose for all things that he creates. We also said that human life has distinctive worth because all human life has been created in the image of God. And so we, from the very beginning, from the moment of conception until our last breath, we have value. The last thing we said about life is last week is that human life is fragile. Human life is fragile. Tomorrow is promised for no one, and so our human lives are fragile. But we are fragile emotionally and mentally, and we need one another. From the beginning, God has created us to be a relational people. God has created us to help one another get through life. And so we are a fragile people, and we should be looking for people that we can help along the way. And so those are our three foundational truths about life in the first couple chapters of the Bible. And today, we're going to be moving on to Genesis chapter 3. And so if you have your Bible here with you this morning, will you turn there and, and be ready as we're going to uh, hit chapter 3 here in just a little bit, and you can follow along with us. Now, this is a pretty big chapter when it comes to the Bible and really comes to the history of the world. A lot happens because this is where everything changes. This is it. This is where everything changes forever. Prior to chapter 3, things were going so well for God, the creator, and the earth, the plants and animals that he had made. Everything was good. Things were going well for Adam and Eve as they were able to roam freely about the garden, meeting with God in the cool of the day. Everything was in perfect harmony, and the relationships were joyous until... Until everything changed, until the ancient serpent, the father of lies, sent Satan, enters in and he convinces Adam and Eve to destroy all of it. The Bible doesn't give us an explanation for the origin of evil, but it does give us some indication of where it came from. In Isaiah 14, we get a glimpse into its origin before, when we see a picture of the devil, an angelic being before the creation of the world. He's consumed with pride and arrogance and he attempts to dethrone the God Most High. And based upon the opening book 
of Job, we, some believe that Lucifer's angelic responsibility was to roam throughout God's universe and kind of be like a scout. He would report back to him all that he had seen. Now, as an angelic being, Satan is a spiritual being, and thus he has free will. And he could have used that freedom to, to obey God, but instead he chose to rebel against God and try to steal the glory for himself, try to steal God's glory for himself. And this is a good reminder for us that any time that we try to steal God's glory and apply it to ourselves, well, it's not going to end well for us. And it didn't work out for Satan either. It didn't end well for him. Now, you might not know this, but in the original Hebrew, which was the language that this was originally written in, the word for Satan is the adversary. And man, I hope that I am never referred to as an adversary of God, because that is a bad place to be, am I right? And it certainly was a bad place for Satan to be as well. So as a result, he is cast out of heaven. And let me tell you, it wasn't like God said, hey, you can just leave. Let me call you an Uber so you can get home. No, he cast him out. And Jesus told his disciples that he witnessed Satan being thrown out of heaven like lightning coming down. And in Revelation 12, John says that Satan and his fallen angels were thrown down out of heaven. I get this image of God like wadding him up in his hand just going, wah, right, right down as hard as he could out of there. Now, where were they thrown to? Well, Peter tells us later that they were locked up in hell awaiting final judgment. I mean, quite the set of events has taken place here, and it all happened before God created Adam and Eve. You know, God, he is a God of love, and he is a God of free will. And he can do anything he chooses, any time that he chooses to do it. But because he's a God of love, he's always going to do the right thing. And he has created intelligent beings, first angels and then humans, with the same capacity to make choices. Now, this is the only way a true love relationship can work, when there is freedom involved, when there is free will involved. Because without free will, well, it's not really a love relationship. It's a forced relationship. But having free will also comes with spiritual responsibility. I feel like I'm quoting Spider-Man here. With great power comes great responsibility. But that's really what it is here, right? We have this great power of free will. We have this freedom to choose what we want to do. But with that comes this great spiritual responsibility to make the right choices. And so we see all that as we head into Genesis chapter 3. And, and so this is what went down in the Garden of Eden. Satan, who doesn't have a physical form because he's an angel, he takes the form of a serpent, and he slithers on into the garden one day. And so we're going to read about what happened here in Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 1. He, Satan, said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Boy, Satan, he knows exactly what to say. He knows exactly what to play up to. He has these tactics, and I think it's important for us to see what tactics Satan uses here in these five verses because they're the same tactics that he still 
using today on us. And so the first thing that we see is he provokes confusion about God's word. I mean, look at the way that, that Satan asked the woman, did God actually say that? I mean, come on. That, that, did he really mean that? Did he really say that? In other words, are you sure that's what he meant when he said that? Like, he, did he actually say don't do it? And, and notice that Satan actually misquotes what God had told Adam and Eve. See, what God actually said was, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, God told them they could eat of every tree except the one. But Satan twists God's word by saying any tree to stir up confusion in the woman's mind. Now, at least she remembered what God had really said. But by now, she's got to be thinking about what this other intelligent creature that she had never met before. Now he comes in and tells her this, and now the wheels are starting to turn in her head. Wait, wait I don't know, maybe he's right. I, I've never really thought of it like that. See, this is all part of Satan's plan because if he could provoke confusion in their minds, well, now he has a foothold. He has a place. The door is open just a little bit to convince them to disobey God. If, they can just, if he can just get them to think in a way they've never thought before and just distrust God just a little bit, then I've got them. Perhaps you've seen movies or TV shows where this exact thing happens. They're trying to break up a team or, or, or get in there, and they start to, they want to stir up trouble. And so somebody comes in, and they start trying to inject confusion into one of the characters' minds, trying to, to break, bring up dissension amongst them. And they make them think that maybe the other person's actually against them. Maybe they're holding out on them. And so once that happens, now that's all this character can think about. Oh, maybe they're right. I, oh, oh, I've never thought about it. Like, maybe they really are against me. And once that happens, this misinformation, it starts to, to consume them, and it spreads in their brain like wildfire. But here's the thing. This story isn't just playing out in the movies and the TV shows that we watch. It's playing out in our lives and our minds as well. See, Satan is still using these same tactics today because they still work. And there are a lot of people that are talking in today's world. There's a lot, a lot of talking. There's a lot of people saying these different things. Not so much listening, but there's a lot of talking going on. You know, social media, it was a pretty cool invention. Because when it first came out, you were like, wow, I can hit send. And somebody all across the world that I've never met, that I never will meet, they get to see what I said. They get to hear my voice and hear my opinion. Where no, maybe nobody listens to me. Maybe, maybe I don't have a lot of friends, but now I can have an impact. I can have a social media presence, right? Everybody's always chasing that clout, that social media presence these days. But man, people are saying a lot of things, aren't they? Saying a lot of things. See, everybody's got an opinion. And it used to be that was reserved for the, the, the dinner table at Thanksgiving or that crazy uncle that would tell you something at a family reunion. But now everybody's a crazy uncle, right? Everybody wants you to know how they feel about the election or about politics or about the latest disaster, the latest thing that's happened. And we're going to make sure that our voice gets out there because if our voice doesn't get out there, then it must mean that we're complicit with what is going on. So there's a lot of people saying a lot of things. And what I have found is a lot of times when we're looking for guidance, 
We, we look to preachers or, or spiritual leaders. Well, how do you feel about this? And, and so these guys with a lot of followers, man, people really start looking to something. And what happens is people so desperately want permission on how they should live rather than looking and seeing what the Bible actually says. And man, if I can just find one famous preacher, if I can just find one spiritual leader that will tell me that it's okay to live that, the way that I want, I'm good. I'm in. And so we just anxiously await the time that someone that we hold up on a pedestal will give us the go-ahead, give us permission, just, just tell me that it's okay. And if they do, boy, don't we feel better about ourselves? Well, he's a preacher. I mean, he agrees with me. Everything's great now. And it's like a burden has been lifted because this person has decided that that behavior is okay. And we're so relieved because, well, now I don't even have to take the time to go back and look and see what the Bible actually says because, well, this person he reads the Bible, and he preaches the Bible all the time. He's got all these followers. People respect him. So clearly, this has to be the truth. We don't even go back and check because we were told what our itching ears wanted to hear. Isn't that pretty much what happened to Eve? Well, she wanted to eat from that tree. It was the forbidden fruit, right? So when Satan twists God's words in her mind, she didn't even think about what God had actually said. And so, friends, let's be careful and watch out for the times that Satan twists the, God, the words of God in our minds today. And a big first step of that, the way to recognize when Satan's trying to do that to you, is you actually have to read and know what God's word says for yourself. That way, when Satan tries to come at you and say, no, no, that's, that's not what that says. That's not what he means there. You can't confuse me, Satan, because I know for myself what the truth is. And we can know when Satan is at work on us. But that's not Satan's only tactic. See, we also see here that he encourages speculation about God's word. Satan says in verse 4, you will not surely die, even though God directly said it, that they would die. Surely you will die if you touch this. Well, Satan, he slithers in and says, oh, come on. He didn't really mean that. You know, it's God. He loves you too much to kill you just like that it's lost in translation. He didn't really mean that. It won't be that bad. See, Satan wants to convince Eve that God doesn't really mean what he says, that, it, that it's not really that serious. It's not that big of a deal. He wouldn't put it there if he didn't want you to touch it. And worse yet, he wants to convince Eve that God's word can't be trusted. And can you see how he's still up to his old tricks today? If he confuses us about the truth, then how do we know what truth truly is? I mean, how many times do we walk up to the sin fork in the road and Satan starts whispering those lies in our ears that says, just go for it. Just do it. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, come on. God loves. God forgives, right? Jesus, he, he died for you so he would forgive things like this. So just go for it. I mean, okay, okay, it, it might be bad, but you're in a really vulnerable place right now, so just, just go ahead and do it, and then just worry about not doing it the next time. Just kick the can down the road. You, I mean, you've got the sinful desire in you. Just worry about the next time. It's Just do it. It's okay. God doesn't really mean all that scary stuff about, about wrath and judgment. He's just, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. You know, it's an increasingly popular opinion amongst Christians these days that hell and God's wrath against sin are not real things. 
See, Satan has spun lies that says that hell isn't real. Because how could a loving God ever send his creation, people created in his image, to such a terrible place? He convinces us to forget all the talk about the lake of fire and the pit and all of these other references to hell all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all there. I mean, Jesus even speaks on hell several times, talking about the weeping and gnashing of teeth, yet somehow Satan has encouraged us to speculate that it simply isn't a real thing. We just forget all those things. And we love to speculate about God's word because it allows us to play down the consequences of our sin or convince ourselves that what we're doing, really, it's not really a sin at all. If Satan can convince us that God doesn't mean what he says in his own word, then we can be convinced to delve into a life of sin without even realizing how much trouble we're really in. Take God at his word, my friends. Don't speculate. Just take him at his word that it's the truth. No speculation, no loopholes. Don't let Satan get a foothold and bring you down. The last tactic of Satan that he used in the garden and he's still using today is he invites ambition to replace God's word. In verse 5, Satan says to Eve, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Basically, Satan's here saying, God's trying to hold you back. He knows how great you can be. Wouldn't you want to be like God? Like, why, who wouldn't want to be like that? He, I mean, he, he just, he doesn't want the best for you. How can he not want you to be the best person that you could be? I mean, he doesn't truly love you then. He's just trying to keep you in, in your place, under his thumb, and under his control. He's trying to keep you where, down where you should be. See, Satan even tried this one. He, he's been doing this a long time with trying to tell people they should be doing more, that God is just trying to, to fight against them. He even tried to use this with Jesus in the desert. You know, remember when, when in, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he, he goes out to the desert to, to, in the wilderness to kind of to get ready, right? But Satan meets him out there. And, and among the things that he tries to tempt Jesus with is he said, look, I'll make you famous. All you have to do is just fall down and, and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I wonder if Satan really understood what he was up against. I mean, this is Jesus. Jesus doesn't need him to be famous. He doesn't need all the kingdoms of the world. God has already given him all authority in heaven and on earth. So he didn't need what Satan was offering, yet Satan's there trying to get in. But when Satan made a similar offer to Eve, well, now this was intriguing. I've never thought of it this way. I could be like God. He appeals to her ambitious side, making her think that God is holding out on them, that he didn't want them to achieve their full potential, what they're truly capable of. And it reminds me of the statistic that you've probably heard that we only use about 10% of our brains. Some of you, it might be less. But they say we only use 10% of our brains, which begs the question, how do I unlock the other 90%, right? And there's been books written about it and movies made about it. They portray these characters. They unlock their full potential, and they almost become like superheroes. Now, I feel like in that chase, right, we always want to be more. We always want to live up to what we truly could be. Well, in some ways, I feel like we're doing that with the Internet these days. 
See, we're constantly feeding our brains. We're on our phones all the time. I want more. I want more information, more information about people, more information about people's lives. Or as soon as I think about something that I don't know, I got to Google it, right? Hey, I got to find out and I got to feed and feed and feed on more information, more information. Our phone is the last thing we look at before we go to sleep. And it's the first thing we look at when we wake up in the morning. We never give ourselves a rest. We never turn it off. I mean, we're talking about the creation story. God rested at the end. Rest is important, yet we never let our brains rest. We're always feeding it more and more information, like we're trying to unlock this other 90%. And I think what I found out, what I think about all these things, what I started to think is that maybe we're not created to unlock that other 90%. Maybe all we can handle is the 10% because our bodies start to break down and our emotions and our mental capacity, they start to break down because we're always trying to learn more and more and more. We're also always trying to be all that we can be. I, I, I got to be all things for all people. I got to know everything about everything. I, you can't tell me that I can't be something, right? I, I, I'm free to be whoever I want to be, and daggone it, I'm going to be everything that anybody would ever want me to be. And if God doesn't want that, well, you know what? He must be holding out on me. He must be against me. And so Satan creeps in there and he goes, why would a God that loves you hold out on you like that? Why wouldn't he want you to be everything you could be? Why would he ask you to restrict yourself or discipline yourself? Now, interestingly enough, we ask these questions about God limiting our freedom while also simultaneously asking how a loving God could let these things happen to us. See, somehow Satan has convinced us to blame God on two fronts rather than look in the mirror. When we use our free will, this amazing free will, this great power of free will that God has given us, and then we get ourselves into a situation and say, God, how you let that happen to me? Well, it can't be both, right? He gives us the free will, but we get ourselves into the situation. Otherwise, we would be saved from everything, but it wouldn't be our choice. He would just always make us do the things that would keep us from harm. See, these are the age-old tactics of the Bible. Right here in Genesis 3, we see the devil at work, and he's still doing the same things today. Confusion, speculation, ambition. And friends, let me tell you, Satan is not to be messed with. A lot of times we think of him as this weak character because our God is so much more powerful than him, and Jesus has overcome him and will again one day. So we can start to think, man, he's not that bad. But he's not to be messed with. He knows how we tick. He knows how to get in there. He knows how to lie to us and exactly how to talk to us to get us to do his bidding. See, he uses these tactics for one purpose, to get us to choose evil over good. See, his fate, it's, he's done. His fate's already sealed. He knows what's happened to him. He's going to be tormented for eternity, and he knows that. Now he's just trying to take down as many people with him as he can. Because if he can get people to follow him, that means they're not following Jesus. And they're not telling people about Jesus either. So if he can take down us, man, he is winning day after day. And so we have to be awake and aware of these tactics so we don't fall from them. And the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you, might, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Like sometimes where we get a little bit confused, we get a little off track, is when we see the evil in the world, we start fighting against flesh and blood. When people make choices that we don't, we don't agree with, when they say things we don't agree with, when they believe things and live out things that we don't agree with, we start fighting against flesh and blood. When what we should actually be fighting against is the spiritual forces behind the evil. See, God, Jesus came and he said, love God and love your neighbor. Love the flesh and blood. Fight against the spiritual forces. So as Christians, I believe we need to stop fighting against the flesh and blood and fight and instead take up against the spiritual forces, which means we need to put on the whole armor of God. So these are the tactics that Satan used on Adam and Eve, but he's also using it on us today. And what was the result of his deception in Genesis 3? Well, let's pick it back up in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, parents, you know this feeling right here. You know what happened. You know which kid hit who and which kid didn't put the toys away, right? But it's more of a, are you going to tell me the truth or am I going to have to get it out of you in a different way, right? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, whole sermons have been preached on this, and I'm just going to sidestep it, uh, but here it is. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And what happened next? Well, you know what happened next. Peace was lost. God's presence was lost. Paradise was lost. I mean, we had it made in the shade. Our best life really was now. We had it so good, but we blew it. And as a result, God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. And boy, did the game change then. Now the world they lived in was a hostile world, things like they had never seen before. I mean, can you even imagine how stark the contrast must have been? I mean, I don't think, when I think about heaven, I don't think I can truly comprehend what a world without sin looks like. Because even the greatest things of this world, even the happiest moments of this world, they're tainted with sin. So I can't imagine a world without sin. And how great and how awesome will heaven be when sin doesn't have its effect on us anymore. But imagine going the other direction. You go from a world with no sin to a suddenly, just like that, to a world full of sin for the first time. Animals, they become wild and ferocious predators. Thorns and thistles, they begin to grow in the ground. Taking care of the land, it wasn't easy anymore. It was something to do before, but now it's toilsome. They, they had to sweat and they're stinking and the, the muscles, you, they start to ache. And, and things, they're not great at home anymore either. There's a strain on the union of Adam and Eve. Where they had been living naked and unashamed, now shame has been introduced. Now they begin to have contrary opinions about things. And the immense pain of childbirth, well, now it's a part of the world. Perhaps even more, made even more dramatic by the fact that 
pain in general wasn't something they had experienced before. And over time, they'd start to notice the degradation of their body, the the wrinkles, the the blemishes, the blisters. And, And they soon discover that what God was saying about their death, that they would surely die, it was true, but just not how they expected. See, they expected a sudden death. But now, they realize that this death is a slow death. Death has entered the world now because you touched what you shouldn't have touched. And right before their eyes, they see their bodies begin to die. But the worst part, imagine Adam going out that next day for his daily walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. Only this time God doesn't show up. And can you imagine the crushing guilt that you would feel? Perhaps you started thinking, maybe it's not that bad. I know he was mad yesterday. I know he kicked us out. That's cool. But, but we'll He loves us, right? I mean, it's God. We'll be back in. Eve, stop crying. It's okay. Everything's going to be okay here. It'll be all right. See, there are times that the weight of our actions don't truly sink in until the next day or the next time that you're supposed to meet with somebody and they don't show up. You get in a fight and you say some things you don't mean in the heat of the moment. I mean, it's, you, you go right to the core, and you try to hurt them, but you didn't even really mean to do that. You're just really angry, but it doesn't sink in until the next day when they're not there, or they don't show up, or they don't answer your calls or texts. You lose your temper, and you yell at your kids. You're just so angry. You had a bad day at work, and you just, you don't even mean, it's not even them, it's just everything, but it doesn't sink in until they don't want to come out of the room, or, or they shy away from you. You quit your job in anger because how could they talk to me like that? I've been here for 20 years. How could you treat me like that? So you you just quit. You just walk out. And it doesn't really sink in until the next day. You feel completely different. You just had a bad day. But your key card doesn't work anymore. Or a few months later, you still haven't found another job. And you go, what did I do? I wonder if Adam and Eve thought that everything was just going to go on like it had. Like when they didn't instantly die, like God had said, maybe they thought there was some truth in what the serpent had said. Maybe they started thinking, you know what? Maybe God didn't really mean that. Maybe this is all going to blow over. And then God didn't show up. And then they go to the garden only to find it closed and guarded by the cherubim and the flaming sword. And then the realization, what have we done? But despite all that had happened, there was hope. And hope came from the unlikeliest of places here. See, God could have instantly killed them. He could have fulfilled his promise in that way. And there are several ways that God could have made things so much worse for them than he did, but instead, God gave them hope. He gave them a way out. And that hope came through a curse. Not exactly what you would expect, but that hope came through a curse. How exactly did he do that? Well, I want to point out here that God didn't curse the man and the woman. He didn't curse Adam and Eve. He cursed the devil, the serpent, by saying, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Not only that, God also cursed the ground saying, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. I don't know if you can start to see it yet, if you can start to see the hope in this curse. Because right here in the beginning, 
God determined the devil's fate for all eternity. He even went so far as saying how he would accomplish this fate. See, the offspring of the woman, now if you think about it, the offspring of the woman is Jesus. The offspring of the woman, Jesus, would crush Satan's head. At Calvary, though Satan struck at his heel and Jesus had to endure pain and death, it wasn't fatal. And death could not hold our Savior in the grave. The offspring of the woman crushed the serpent, crushed Satan. And in the cursing of the ground, we also see God's mercy. God certainly could have cursed Adam instead for his sin and negligence, but instead he chose to deflect his anger to the ground. Man, God is so good. I mean, imagine what our life could have been like, what our life would be, how much harder it would be if he had chosen to curse Adam, chosen to curse man instead of the ground. This curse on the ground, it causes natural disasters and other tragedies in this fallen world, and certainly those are tough to endure. This life is hard. In this life, you will have troubles of any kind, but imagine how tough our lives would have been if we had been the ones. If it's that tough when he cursed the ground, how much worse would it be if it had been, if it had been us? Friends, we live in a fallen world. We endure the pains of a cursed earth, but from the beginning, God has shown his immense mercy. And certainly, there are consequences for the sin of Adam and Eve and for our sin as well. The tactics of Satan convinced Adam and Eve to bring sin into the world, and the same tactics are still working today. And because of that, we are still in need of God's mercy just as much as Adam and Eve. And God's biggest gift of mercy came in the form of his son, Jesus. When God loved the world so much that he would send his one and only son to save us from our sins so we could have eternal life rather than the death we so deserve because of our sin. And I want to finish this morning by reading from the words of Paul in Romans 5. Paul says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Death entered the world because man was deceived by Satan. But I am so thankful that our merciful and loving God sent us another man, a loving and living Savior to overcome sin and the grave and make us righteous once again. Let's pray. Father God, we come this morning, and we are so thankful for your love and for your mercy that as, though as mankind we let sin enter this world, we were deceived by the evil one, that you had mercy even in that. And it may not have been in ways that we would, we would want or ways that we would see immediately, but I pray that we can learn from that, that though there are times in our lives where we cry out to you and we don't immediately see your mercy, that we would, we would remember that you are a merciful and loving God and you are always working for the good of those that follow you. So I pray that our faith would never be shaken by the tactics of Satan. That we would know the truth. That we would know your word. And we would know what your character is. And know that you're never going to let us down. There are going to be times that Satan's going to try to convince us that you have let us down time and time again.
but those are lies of Satan because we have all been created in your image. We all have immense value to you. And you love us so much, each of us so much, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us on the cross that our sins would be washed away so that all of us could spend eternity with you. So Father, this morning I pray that we would take up against the spiritual forces of this world, that we wouldn't get distracted or confused, that we wouldn't speculate on these things, that we wouldn't try to be like you, that we would submit to, to your son Jesus and make him the Lord and the King of our lives. Father, I thank you so much for sending Jesus, that our sins, that while we were still dead in our sins, he came to die on the cross for each one of us because that was the only way. And I thank you for the mercy and the grace that comes through. Most of all, I thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.